Welcome to the RUF Berkeley podcast. RUF is a campus fellowship centered around experiencing and expressing the love of God to our campus, our classmates, and our community. For more information, check out our website at rufberkeley.com or find us on Instagram at rufberkeley. Psalm 134, Song of Ascent. Come, bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who stand by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. May the Lord bless you from Zion, he who made heaven and earth. So tonight we're on the very last Psalm of Ascent. And uh, for those of you maybe are just jumping in for the very first time this semester, uh, the Psalms of Ascent are Psalm 120 through 134. And they kind of, what's beautiful about the Psalms of Ascent is they capture for us um, through this journey metaphor what the Christian life is actually like. It's a, it's a journey, um, it's a sojourn, it's a pilgrimage uh, in which we apprentice ourselves uh, to Jesus and his way. And uh, it captures for us in a really unique and vivid and poetic language um, the messiness and the realness of the normal Christian life that's actually helpful for us because I think that we often feel like uh, being a Christian looks um, really fun, or like that's the, the stereotype images we have of it. It's supposed to be really fun. You're always happy. You never really struggle with anything that bad. But the Psalms of Ascent have really kind of reframed that understanding for us that um, the normal Christian life is often full of pandemics, as it were. And uh, here we are in the midst of a literal pandemic, gleaning wisdom from these ancient words, uh, even today. Um so we're we're ending tonight with the very last one, uh, Psalm of Ascent. We haven't been able to cover every psalm in this series, uh, but we are going to end where the Psalms of Ascent end in 134. And just as a brief um, note on Psalm 133 and 134, they're kind of connected in some sense uh, as they, they point us to two crucial aspects of the Christian life. Psalm 133 in particular is about the necessity of of unity, uh, particularly between Christians. It's not just necessarily a a generic unity, um, kind of a lowest common denominator unity, but it's it's really a charge that if there is unity anywhere in the world, it ought to be in the church. Uh, And that's something um, that I wish we would have had time to, to go through. It's something that's really overlooked within many churches today. Uh, many Christians would rather sow discord over matters of of second importance, uh, even if they are really important. So it could be matters of pro-life or political parties or sexual ethics or morality in general, um, uh, rather than strengthen our unity in what's most important, that we're bound together from different pasts with different stories and different sins and struggles and different colors and different cultures Uh, We're bound together into one unified family in Jesus, and he's working on all of us. We're not unified in a particular moral soapbox that we love to complain about uh, or a culture war that we're hell-bent on fighting. We're united in Jesus and um, the redemptive war that he's waged against the powers of darkness in the world. Um, And uh, it's him that ultimately unites us, not our political uh, platforms. Policies don't unite us. The person of Christ unites us. Um, 
The necessity of unity, however, that's talked about in Psalm 133 is only a byproduct of what we learn about in Psalm 134. And what we hear in Psalm 134, what it's all about is the centrality of blessing the Lord. The centrality of blessing the Lord, the whole purpose of the journey. Um, Just making sure my mic was on, and it is, thankfully. The whole purpose of the journey that we've been on is to bless the Lord. Um, The Westminster Shorter Catechism, question one, puts it this way. What is the chief end of humanity? What's the chief end, the purpose of humanity? And the answer is to glorify God and enjoy God forever. That's another way of saying, bless the Lord. Bless the Lord. Bring glory to the Lord. The sole purpose of our existence is to glorify God and to enjoy God, to bless Him and be blessed by Him as we enjoy Him. That's that's our chief end. And to, to put it in the language of the Psalms of Ascent, that's the end of the road. That is the new Jerusalem that we are headed to. Um. Uh, and, and we even mimic that in our weeks uh, from, from Sunday to Sunday. We, we travel through the week heading to uh, the new Jerusalem that is prototypically embodied in the people of God on Sunday mornings. So uh, tonight we're going to dive into Psalm 134 and we're going to get super practical. We're going to look at three things. <clears throat> we're going to look at where we bless. We're going to look at how we bless. And number three, we're going to look at why we bless. Okay, so where we bless God, how we bless God, and why we bless God. So first, where we bless God. I think for starters, we need to just ask this question, what do we mean by bless the Lord? What do we mean by bless the Lord? Uh, I think perhaps the simplest understanding uh, for what Psalm 134 is getting at by bless the Lord is that We gratefully acknowledge who he is. The simplest meaning, uh, simplest terms, we gratefully acknowledge who God is and what he's done. Um, Perhaps the best marriage advice that I've ever gotten um, was actually secondhand. And uh, it was when a friend of mine told another friend, um, he, he said, I need you to get distracted when your wife walks in the door. I need you to get distracted when your wife walks in the door. If we're in a meeting, if we're out to lunch, wherever we are, if your wife comes around, I need you to always be distracted by her. Uh, you need to constantly like double take your wife. And and uh, gentlemen, those in the crowd, this is very true. Uh, not saying I'm the best at that, but that is always let your wife be a distraction to you. Um, uh, blessing the Lord is kind of similar. Um, we too are married to God, whether we're actually married in this life or not. And blessing the Lord is similar. We need to be distracted by his beauty. We need to be distracted by his power. We need to be distracted by his mercy. We need to be distracted by his mercy or by his uh, justice and his wisdom and his, uh, his love for us. And we need to gratefully acknowledge it. We're distracted by who God is, who he is and what he's done. And we bless him with our grateful gaze, as it were. Um, Now, um, no matter where we are or 
what we're doing uh, in in this life, we we ought to always be blessing God, right? By how we live, um, by how we work, by how we relate to one another. Everything that we do, everything is to be a blessing to the Lord. It's to be done as unto the Lord. But there's one place in particular that Scripture speaks of where we are uniquely called uh, to bring blessing to the Lord. And that unique particular place is Sunday morning worship in your local church. Both of those. Sunday morning worship in your local church. Not on a Hillsong YouTube live stream, not on a My Greatest Motivational Speaker tweet stream, not on a My Favorite Podcast, in, in normal times, right? In the local church for Sunday morning worship, God has promised to meet us there. I want us to look at the text, uh, verses 1 and 2. It says, Come, bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who stand by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. Yeah, all of life, right, is to be lived before the face of God, is to be a blessing to God. Our lives are to be a fragrant offering to God. But there is something unique about blessing the Lord in the midst of God's people, in in the midst of corporate worship. And the reason why is because God has promised to meet us there by His Spirit through His Word and through His sacraments in a way that He does not meet us anywhere else. It's not to say that God does not meet you in the day-to-day of your life, in every moment and every second of your life. He does. But he also uniquely meets you in the local church for Sunday worship. Um, you know, this is uh, one of the reasons why I always say that you can technically be a Christian, uh, but not go to church. Um, but I know this with absolute certainty. It's, it's that if, if that is you, if you consider yourself a Christian, uh, but not really into the church, um, what that does mean is that you will always, always be incredibly spiritually malnourished. You'll be flatlined spiritually. And in, in reality, realistically, you're probably not going to make it as a Christian. You're, you'll probably walk away. That's how crucial it is that we hear that story, the gospel story, over and over and over again. The saints gathered on Sunday. I mean, this is why it's so hard for us right now, right, to be Christians, if we can just be pointed about it. The saints gathered on Sunday, um, hearing the gospel preached and tasting the gospel through bread and wine and being washed by the gospel through baptism. That is the primary fuel for faithful living. And that is reserved for Sunday and for Sabbath worship. That's why RUF uh, is not enough. It's not enough to just have RUF. RUF is good for you. I'm glad that you're here. I think RUF is a great fellowship. And I would even go so far as to say that you need RUF. You need fellowships. You need community that meet you uh, in between Sundays. Um, but uh, we do not, uh, we're not the local church. 
We don't baptize you. We don't take the Lord's Supper. We don't have membership. There's not a collection of pastors here that have a unique oversight of your soul and your well-being. Um, everyone here in this group, unlike the church, everyone here looks like you and everyone talks like you and everybody worries about the same things that you do and everybody has crushes on the same boys that you do or crushes on the same girls that you do. And that's not the case in the church. You've got old people and you've got young people. You've got dying people and you've got newborns. You've got faithful people and you've got faithless people. You've got married people and unmarried people, divorced people, remarried people, addicts, rich people, poor people, middle class, uneducated, educated. You've got it all. And it's not just about you. And we need that really bad because I feel like every cultural narrative that exists right now tells us the world is about you, including college, which is let's concentrate 40,000 people of the same age with the same temptations, put them all together and see if it's a good recipe. And it's usually not. That's why we always make our worst decisions when we're in college. But uh, Jesus's grace is sufficient. So uh, it's not about you. It's about more than you. And um, I think now more than ever, I'm, I'm like deeply miss Sunday morning worship. Um, and in fact, uh, it's been so long that at times I forget what it feels like. I feel like my kind of uh, sensory apparatus is kind of dead. Um, and I'm sure that many of you, if not all of you, can relate. But so many times... Um, so many times I've wanted to walk away from God. So many times I've doubted. So many times I've been caught in dark sin and dark struggle. And the thing that I was so ashamed of that was going to keep me from going to church, when I actually ended up going to worship, Church was the very thing that captured my imagination once again for the beauty of Jesus and his mercy for me. Worship has a unique way of doing that. Only on Sundays do you hear the truest story about you and the truest story about the world. And we will forget it if we don't hear it. Everything that you remember right now, you remember by and large, because it's on uh, repeat. It's reinforced through the activity of your day-to-day -day life. Your major, you will graduate from Berkeley because the curriculum that makes up your major, you have waded in the waters of for four years. If we don't hear that story, we'll forget it. Your shame is not the truest story about you. Your guilt is not the truest story about you. Your grades are not the truest story about you. Your anxiety is not the truest story about you. Your failures and your successes are not the truest story about you. Your, draw, your job prospects right out of college are not the truest story about you. None of those are the truest story about you. Jesus has written the truest story about us all, and we need to be distracted by that. We need to revel in that, and we need to bless him for that, where he has promised to meet us in his church. That's where we bless him. Um, we, we bless him in the local church, 
and Sunday morning worship because he's promised to meet us there. Um, now let's look at how we bless God. Um, how we bless the Lord could be answered in, in several ways, right? We kind of hinted at that too about just how we live our lives and what we do with our lives. Um, but Psalm 134 highlights one aspect in particular that I find very interesting, and that's that worship, blessing the Lord, is meant to be embodied. Uh, so where are we? We're in the church. We're in Jerusalem. We're in the new Jerusalem. We're with the saints gathered. And he's reminding us that worship is to be embodied. And so in verses 1 and 2, he says, Come bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who stand by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. Now, as uh, admittedly, as a Presbyterian minister, I can say that somehow we missed the memo on this. Uh, we are not known to be the most emotive or theatric in our worship. Uh, and that's to our fault, really, uh, because Scripture calls us to worship with our bodies. We're embodied people. Right? It calls us to stand, to lift up our hands here in Psalm 134. And this isn't advocating for some kind of raucous, you know, express yourself however you want kind of form of worship. There's an order to it, right? Because this is a collective group. So everybody's not doing their own thing. It's not just individual. Um, uh, It's not like having like a worship concert in your car while you're on a road trip or something. Uh, but, But still, nonetheless, the Bible tells us to use our bodies in worship. And there's a few reasons why. Um, the first reason is that uh, when, we, when we use our bodies in worship, it reminds us and reinforces uh, that we bring our whole selves to worship. We bring all of us to worship. It's not just our brains, which Presbyterians are often guilty of, uh, or some set of ideas about God. Uh, We don't just uh, bring this idea that church is a social club where we kind of get socially connected. It's not just uh, a box to check or a rule to follow. Um, It's something we bring our entire selves to, like warts and all. It's something that demands your whole person, your whole life. And our posture in worship matters because we're attaching our bodies to worship. Our posture in worship matters because we're attaching our bodies to worship. Now, I'm going to tell you the second reason why this matters, and this is really important. This is what I really want you to focus on. I hope it uh, resonates a bit. Um, The second reason is that our hearts follow the rhythms and routines of our lives. Our hearts follow the rhythms and routines of our lives every day. Your rhythms and routines are shaped by the world around you, the spaces that you occupy. And so those spaces, that world that, that, that uh, shapes your routines and rhythms, it, it be- then begins to determine what's primary in your life. And your heart begins to love those primary things. Your heart begins to obsess over those primary things. Uh, One of my favorite authors, uh, James K. Smith, puts it this way. um, Our tastes, as we say, are acquired, but our tastes can be trained without realizing it. 
For example, the widespread use of high fructose corn syrup in so many processed food products generates a desire for more of it despite the negative effects of such processed food products. The result is a vicious cycle of hunger that is the product of engineered tastes. We learn to crave things that aren't good for us because we are immersed in systems and environments that channel us into this sort of eating. Our hungers are being trained and habituated without our realizing it. The same is true for our deepest existential hungers, our loves, our primary things. We might not realize the ways we're being covertly trained to hunger and thirst for idols that can never satisfy. This is why, uh, if I can just be candid, this is why so many of you are worried about whether or not you'll have a job after college. And in particular, Berkeley students, whether or not you'll have the job after college. Uh, it's funny enough, I was in a conversation with a friend um, who, a student here, uh, one of our REF students actually told me that this, this guy in particular, who's a, a graduate of, of Stanford, uh, he looked at his um, CV, his resume, and he said, man, this guy has done everything that Berkeley students dream of doing. And uh, I, I was grabbing a drink with that friend and we were kind of talking about this phenomenon. And he was telling me that like, uh, it's not even money that necessarily animates Berkeley students or people that are highly driven in this kind of techie world. It's option value, as he called it. So like the perfect job out of college is the job that gives you the most options where the most doors are open so that you control your destiny. Um, one, because we're so afraid of commitment, but two, it also looks really good to have all those options, right? Because that has become the primary love of your life. Your heart has been curated in the halls of Berkeley after four years of rhythm and routine to place so much weight on what you'll do the moment that you leave here. Our hearts follow our rhythms and routines. Now, this is particularly interesting in a spiritual context because usually most of us think the opposite. Um, we think the opposite as it relates to our uh, relationship with God. And in fact, most of us refuse to bless the Lord uh, until our hearts are in it, until we, we, we feel it, right? So, so what do I mean? How, how often, whether it's small group, whether it's large group or whether it's church, do you, do you just say or do you hear people say, I just don't feel like going. I don't feel like it. Meaning that once you do feel like going, then that's the optimal time to go when your feelings kind of align uh, with what you want to do. Uh, for me, that's, uh, that's all the time. I'm, I'm a very emotional person, really led by my feelings. So I'm not naturally inclined because I'm sinful. Uh, I'm not naturally inclined to want to spend time with people who aren't like me. I'm not naturally inclined to uh, uh, to spend time with people who don't have the same interests. 
And uh, contrary to popular belief, I don't have a natural affinity for ancient Near Eastern texts. I don't like sit around in my room like with scrolls out because I like to read old Jewish literature. Um, I'd rather watch sports. I'd rather play video games and I'd rather eat my grandmother's famous sausage balls. If you don't know what those are, you should have been here last week. Uh, I can make some for Christmas. Um, I regularly don't feel like a Christian. I don't feel like being a Christian. I don't feel like I want to be one. And so we think if we don't feel it, this is the opposite thing here. If we don't feel it, then lifting our hands in worship, either as we're singing or as we're we're receiving a benediction, lifting our hands in worship or whatever makes us, um, or, or whatever it is that we're doing, that actually would make us a fraud, would make us hypocritical. But Psalm 134 is showing us something drastically different. Going through the rhythms and the routines of worship according to the psalmist, is often the thing that wakes up our hearts. It's showing up. It's bowing your head. The psalmist never says, hey, if you feel it, right? I mean, what if this were our logic in marriage? If you feel like you like the person you're waking up next to this day, then stay married to them. If you don't feel like it, then leave them. There'd be a lot more divorce. Right now, right? But so the, the psalmist doesn't say, if you feel like it, do it. It just says in a command, lift up your hands, stand, respond, confess, bow your head, bring your body to worship, and your heart will follow. Jamie Smith, in one more quote, he puts it this way He says, um, The practices of the church are also a spiritual workout inviting us into routines that train our heart muscles, our fundamental desires that govern how we move and act in the world. This metaphor is at least as old as John Calvin. For Calvin, the church is a gymnasium, a training ground, a school, and a community of preparation and practice in God's sanctifying, transformative paideia which just means school. Think about how that reframes your whole inner dialogue during worship. I don't know if you guys kind of struggle with this, but I remember when I was in college, I kind of felt this way. Um, If you're a Christian, especially. So like you're in worship and rather than thinking like, oh, like there's the person over there with their hands raised, they must be extra spiritual. Or like, they must be really good. They must be really close to God. Rather than thinking that, or rather than thinking that like, I can never lift my hands because if I do, then I'm a fraud. I'm a hypocrite because I'm not being true to myself. My heart's not in it. I'm not feeling it. I know what I did last night. I can't lift my hands because then I'll be a fraud. That's not what Psalm 134 is saying. Psalm 134 is saying, I'm lifting my hands I'm moving my body. I'm standing when the word is read because my heart is not in it. And I want it to be in it. I'm bringing my body so my heart will follow. Worship, right? Us blessing the Lord is less about you expressing your love for God 
and more about God's love shaping you by the rhythms and routines of worship. I don't know if I can explain it in an articulate enough way, but I would hope you would just believe me. The whole be true to yourself narrative is a prison. Left to ourselves, we are at best very indecisive. But in reality, we're very dark people. Don't be true to yourself in worship. Instead, forget about yourself in worship. You can't stand on your performance anyways. That's not the point of it. So in worship, rather than standing on your own performance, stand, lift your hands based on Jesus's performance. This is the beauty of Psalm 134 because it's given us the muscle for gospel defiance to lift our hands in praise for what Jesus has done and not what we've done. One quick note, too, uh, before we move on to our final point. I want you to notice in uh, verse 1, Come bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who stand by night in the house of the Lord. This is metaphorical in many ways, right? There were Levitical priests that actually served 24-hour cycles in the house of God, but it's also broader, and there's a metaphorical meaning that any season of life, any time of day that you find yourself in, the house of God is open to you. I mean, what confidence we have that in the night, at the end of the journey, the psalmist is still in the night, the dark night of the soul, and God's invitation still stands. You don't have to wait till morning breaks to enter into the presence of God. So we've looked at where we bless God, right, in the church, in this unique place where he meets us. We've looked at how we bless God, in particular here in Psalm 134, with an embodied howness. We bring our bodies to worship, where we lift our hands, whether we're feeling it or not, and we, we stand in the night um, we, we can bow our heads and we can close our eyes and we can, we can sing the songs. We can lift our hands to receive a blessing. Uh, but lastly, we're going to look at why we bless God. Why we bless God. And the, the answer is really simple. We bless God because we were blessed. I said at the beginning that to bless the Lord means that we we gratefully acknowledge who he is. We gratefully acknowledge who he is and what he's done. But interestingly, in this last verse, God is blessing us. In verse three, God is blessing us. It says, may the Lord bless you from Zion, he who made heaven and earth. Now, that's quite a shift. So far in this passage, We've been blessing God. The whole passage has been Godward, right? We're gratefully acknowledging Him because of who He is and what He's done. That's why we're blessing God. But for God to bless us, God has to make us into something that we are not. He's not going to bless us because of who we are. And if God wants to bless us, he has to give us something we've never had. And so how does he do that? How does God bless us? Because we aren't worthy of blessing like he is. I'm a wreck of a person. 
And if I'm not worthy of blessing like he is, then I've never had his blessing. It's something that we've never had. So how does he bless us? And friends, God blesses us through Jesus. The new Jerusalem, the end of the journey is where we have the beatific vision, where we see Jesus face to face, where faith is no more and sight is now full in our Savior. He, Jesus, he makes us into something that we are not. And through Jesus, he gives us something we never had because through Jesus, God mediates his covenant blessings to us. Through Jesus, the blessing of God comes to us. And yet again, in verse three, where do we find this blessing at its fullest? Where do we see this blessing really taking root in our hearts as we're on the road? It's in Zion. It's a fancy word for the church. It's the earthly manifestation of the kingdom that is to come. It's God's people. His blessing doesn't primarily meet you in some secret message that he gives you in your dreams. His blessing is not removed from you in some far off land that you have no access to. It's not far removed in some distant heavenly reality that you have to be mindful of and meditate in order to get to. It's not tucked tightly into your morning devotions. So if you miss one, you miss the blessing. It's not alone with you in your personal and private faith that like never makes it outside of your precious little heart. It is found in corporate public worship in his church, a place that you can see, a place that you can go, a place that is always near and a place that you are always welcome, even in the night. And it's in his church that Jesus, who according to Hebrews is, is the mediator of a new covenant and the mediator of a sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And that better word is a word of blessing over you. The reality is, is that we can't bless God until he first blesses us. That is the entirety of the Christian life. All of our movement towards God is a response to God. The creator of heaven and earth could have done whatever he wanted, but he decides to bless us in Jesus. And therefore, we bless because we have been blessed. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that... um, You are always blessing us in Jesus, and we pray that your blessing to us in Jesus um, would sink deeply into our hearts, especially when we don't feel it. And would we trust that you're at work even when we don't feel it? And would we trust that you are near even when we don't feel it? And would we trust that um, 
you're present with us tonight and even through Zoom because we don't feel it. So Lord, we bless you for this semester and we acknowledge gratefully um, your kindness and your goodness to us. Uh, We pray these things in Christ's name, amen. Amen.